HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is presented by Total Food Service. Total Food Service delivers the restaurant and food service industry's most comprehensive package of news and information. Offered in print and digitally on TotalFood.com, you'll receive the latest on the new normal. This week on Meet in 3, we're embracing the spooky spirit of Halloween, from zombies to witches. We're exploring the odd, the occult, and the taboo in the world of food. There are restaurants with no storefront, shrunken down into hundreds of square feet versus thousands of square feet. No servers, no hosts, nobody taking your order. The rats in the sewers are now smelling, all of a sudden, fresh food molecules. And those rats were like, holy cow, follow that scent. Tune in to Meat and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey there, and welcome to the Feed Feed podcast. I'm Julie Resnick, co-founder of The Actual Feed Feed, the world's largest crowdsourced food publication and social media community, serving as your daily source for what to cook, bake, eat, and drink. I will be your host for season three of the Feed Feed podcast, a special series called What's on Your Table? Each episode, I will be taking a look at a specific country, region, or people and talking to a few members of the Feed Feed community about the food, recipes, ingredients, and flavors that make up the dishes that are always on their tables. Today, we're talking all about Korean food, and I'm joined by two special guests. Yanni Kim, a lover of food, making it, eating it, sharing it, is the daughter of Korean immigrants, a wife and a mother of two sons who grew up in Southern California and literally married the boy next door. Yanni is an eternal entrepreneur who began her career in fashion, where she owned and operated several stores within the Fred Siegel Santa Monica. Then she and her husband took over the family restaurant, the Albright, on Santa Monica Pier, in 2012. And then they went on to to launch established in 1977, a boutique restaurant group specializing in the revitalization of legacy businesses and curated food concepts. In 2019, Yanni launched Kimchi Avocado, combining her California lifestyle with her Korean roots. Kimchi Avocado is a dynamic digital platform that celebrates food and the ways in which nourishing meals connect people to one another and brings families together. Yanni also sells inventive seasonal and holiday grazing boards on her website, Kimchi Avocado. Yanni lives in her childhood home in Santa Monica with her husband, Greg, their two children, and family dog. I'm also joined by Chef Jay Lee, who immigrated to the U.S. in 1997 and became a a U.S. citizen three years ago. Born in Noan, South Korea, Jay is the grandson of a Korean Marine general, an amateur beatboxer, and a karaoke rapper. As a chef, Jay has worked for some of the biggest names in the business, including Danny Meyer's Union Square Hospitality Group and Morimoto's Momosan Ramen and Sake. Jay, is, Jay also ran the very successful Korean pop-up Him, meaning strength in Korean, 
In 2019, Jay opened No One Restaurant in New York City, his first solo brick and mortar venture. No One serves Korean-inspired food and drinks driven by New York City's bold hip-hop and street culture. No One is very personal to Jay as a chef because it's representative of his Korean-American immigrant journey. And he is also No One, No One, without his culture and roots. Opening his restaurant was truly a family affair, and even his dad made every table by hand. Jay and Yanni, welcome to the Feed Feed podcast. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having us. So, Jay, I want to talk to you first. So you immigrated in 97. Uh, Tell us how old were you? What was that process like? And where did your family move to? Yeah, so in 97, I was eight years old. Um, We moved from No One, South Korea to Jamaica, Queens. It was a huge change. I was so young, I didn't even know what that meant. Uh, We visited, you know, my my mom had her older sister living here in Jamaica, Queens. So we visited um, in early 97 and came back to Korea. I remember we smuggled smuggled back some mangoes Mm -hmm. because mangoes didn't Mm -hmm. exist in Korea at that time. And I just remember like eating that and just in being that being my favorite fruit of all time and then all of a sudden my parents were like hey uh do you want to move should we move to america and uh, i think i said yes with my little brother um we didn't really know what that meant until we moved there and it's like oh my god i don't even speak this language yeah that was going to be my next question did you speak any english when you moved you know at at eight, eight years old um i took a lot of like after school programs because, you know, uh, you know, kids in Korea at an early age, you always you, you don't you don't finish school and that be it. You know, you have to go to after school programs to study more math and study more and study a different language. So I did take um, English classes, but it was so basic. It was just like ABC. I might have like memorized up to E and, uh, and and that was it. That's all the English skills I had. Wow. So you landed in Jamaica, Queens, and and then what? What did your parents do? Um, how was integrating into school for you? I mean, how I'm assuming your life um, was completely different than it was uh, back in South Korea. Yeah, so different. In South Korea, I was uh, the vice president of my of my class. Um, I was one of the popular kids. I had a lot of friends. I was popular amongst girls <laughs> and then and then i come to jamaica queens i'm there's only two asian kids in the, in the, in the entire elementary school me and this uh girl one year older than me um and you know my first day of class my first day of school i remember my teacher her name was mrs black and she wanted me to you know speak to another korean uh, kid so mrs black brought introduced me to this girl i don't remember her name and then she starts talking to me in chinese and in my head i'm like i'm like oh my god mrs black doesn't thinks that she's korean yeah but i can't communicate this to mrs black because i don't speak english so i'm just so i just stood there in silence and i just remember being like this this is not this is I was really uncomfortable. Yeah, that's not good. Not good. Oh. Yeah. And Mrs. That's... Black was a brunette and um she was white. So I I I have no idea. I'm thinking African Americans are, you know, black uh but someone's name someone's name is Mrs. Black, but they're white. I I was just confused. I was just very <laughs> confused as a child. And so during that time, um what were your parents doing for work uh when when you got here? Yeah, so my so my parent my dad is a carpenter by trade and my mom was an assistant uh, movie director in Korea. Okay. And um and we moved here and my my mom's older sister, uh, so my aunt had an after school program for for, you know, for elementary school and um like high school students. And um so my mom, you know, assisted helping, you know, cook meals and watch after the kids and kind of babysit them too after school. And that's what my dad did as well, um, initially. Okay. And, um, 
how about food? Let's talk about, um, you know, is food really central to your family life? I mean, what are some of your, I mean, obviously one of your early food memories you already mentioned, uh, the mango that you brought back from the U.S. Uh, back to South Korea. Um, but talk to us about, you know, moving here and did the way that you ate and cook as a family change when you got to the U.S.? Um, the way we ate at home um, did did not change. Um, you know, I I grew up just eating home home cooked meals by my mom and my grandma. Uh huh. Um, so we had a full full dinner every every night. We always ate together as a family. Um, lots of side dishes, always rice, some sort of protein. Um, and, you know, for breakfast, breakfast, I remember eating like, you know, just like a kid's breakfast, like cereal and milk. Yep. But um, I ate that as a kid growing up in Korea as well. So that that wasn't a difference. Um, so, yeah, it, it's it stayed the same. OK, cool. Um, so, Yanni, I'm going to jump over to you for a second. Um, you describe yourself as the daughter of hardworking immigrants. Um, you grew up in L.A., when did your parents move to the U.S. And, and where did they come from? Well, first off, I just want to say, Jay, I relate to everything you just said so deeply, even though I'm a second generation uh, Korean. So thank you so much. That was so fun to listen. Um, so I am the daughter of two immigrants. So that makes me second generation. I was born here in L.A. And my parents came actually separately to this country in 1972. Um, my mom came and started off as a cocktail waitress. And uh, she also was putting herself through beauty school. And my father was um, started off as a sign painter and then worked kind of odd-end jobs. You know, I remember one... Uh, holiday season, he worked selling Christmas trees, and uh, it was a couple years before they saved up enough money to buy one of their own businesses, and that was a restaurant, and that's the restaurant that my husband and I own and operate today. Wow. So um, they opened up their first restaurant or their restaurant, and was it called the Albright at that time on Santa Monica Pier? It wasn't. It was called Santa Monica Pier Seafood, and it really actually wasn't even a restaurant. It was more of a fish market. And they, I, I don't even think back then they had, you know, you had to, you know, require a license of sorts. It was, they literally stuck, I think, a deep fryer in there that my dad built. And my grandmother knew how to make shrimp tempura. And mm -hmm. Um, and that was more of a novelty back then. You know, Japanese food hadn't really become a thing at that point. Um, and my grandmother knew how to cook Japanese food and Korean food really well. And so people just started lining up for this shrimp tempura. And then it, you know, went moved into fish and chips and it grew from there. But it really actually started off as a fish market uh, to start. Oh, that's great. So were fishermen actually coming in from like Marina del Rey and you were buying their fish and selling it in the market? So I think my father started off uh, buying directly from fishermen. And then I believe he he moved into distributors who would come in with, um, you know, Dungeness crab. And that's kind of what he became known for, even though it wasn't local, um, people would come in and get Dungeness crab and Maine lobster and they had a saltwater tank. And that was really was the draw and what brought people from all over Los Angeles. And did you spend a lot of time there as a child? Were you working in the restaurant? Oh, definitely. There was, um, you know, this was not in the time of babysitters or nannies. This was my grand, all hands on deck. My grandmother worked at the restaurant. My mom worked at the restaurant. And I just, I, I pretty much fended for myself. Um, it was a lot of fun. I worked in the kitchen. I was often helping customers. And maybe that's where I learned how to, you know, really deal with customer service and I, I grew up in the restaurant pretty much. We spent most of our days there. 
Yeah, I can imagine. Um, and so what about, you know, home cooking? Did, was there much time to, you know, uh, cook together and eat at home outside of the time in the restaurant. I'm, I'm curious, what are some of um, your early food memories and some of your favorite Korean dishes um, from growing up? We definitely ate a lot um, at the restaurant. And actually, one of my earliest food memories was what we now call family meal. Um, but we didn't have that name. It was just, you know, it was time to eat. And there was the Korean side of the restaurant, which was all of my family members. And then, uh, you know, most of the people who worked there were of Latinx heritage. And mm -hmm. um, it was really such a beautiful thing. There was a picnic table in the back of the restaurant, and that was where we all broke bread together. And, you know, I can see now that it was a real fusion of Korean and um, Latin food. There would be you know, kimchi fried rice with chorizo and cara jalapenos. Mm -hmm. And there would be pulgogi, but then wrapped in corn tortillas. And, you know, this real beautiful fusion of two cultures and two cultures of people who really didn't even speak English very well. I was probably the only person at that table who spoke, you know, fluent English. But, you know, here we were, these two very different cultures um, connecting with the food of our countries. And I always think back on that memory very fondly because I was very young, probably about four or five. So it's probably one of my earliest food memories. Yeah, I love that. Um, you know, both of you obviously living in New York and in LA, um, you know, so many different people and cultures and, and foods bringing people together. Um, you know, that's one of the things that I love about New York is going to all of the different neighborhoods and experiencing, um, you know, the different cuisines, um, you know, of the different countries of people that obviously now call New York their home. And I, the same is true here in Los Angeles. Um, Jay, I want to um, go back over to you and and talk a little bit about um, your journey as a chef. Um, you know, how did you get into cooking? Um, where where did that all start? When did you become interested in, in food and preparing food as your career? Yeah, so um, I, you know, first I wanted to become a nurse, so I went to uh, Hunter College. Um, I wasn't a citizen or I didn't have my green card then. So the best I could do was take, uh, prere prerequisite classes for the nursing program. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and Hunter has a great reputation for their uh, nursing program. So I wanted to, you know, go for that. Um, my parents, so I lived in Long Island. I gra graduated middle school and high school in Long Island, Hicksville. And, um, I told my dad that I wanted to move out so I can be closer to college. And what he said to me was, hey, listen, if you want to move out, feel free to do so, but you're going to have to find a job to pay your own rent and to cover your own expenses. Um, and I had I had zero job experience. And um, my dad had a friend friend in, ch at, in church who owned a Japanese ramen shop. So he connected me to his friend and um, I got a job you know, my first day of college in 2007, that was my first day ever stepping into a kitchen. Um, and, and I, I really enjoyed cooking alongside like my big bros and, you know, older sisters. Mm -hmm. They, they really took me under their wing and showed me how to, you know, like the, the working life of a restaurant professional, you know, um, the camaraderie, like how we can, you know, uh, go through a, get through a rough day together, helping each other, working hard, um, things like that. I learned, you know, through working with them. And I, I failed chemistry and in Hunter College while I was working at, at a, as a cook at a ramen shop. And I had to make a decision because, uh, you know, nursing, prereq, prereq nurse classes were not easy for me. It did not make much sense. So I made a decision to go for culinary and I changed uh, and I transferred schools to um, to a school in Brooklyn called City Tech, and oh. that that's how it all started. Well, lucky for us that you um, that you made that decision. So, um, 
talk to us a little bit about your kind of trajectory as a chef. Um, you know, you worked for Danny Meyers Union Square Hospitality Group and Morimoto's. So, you know, how did you go from, you know, uh, cooking in that ramen shop, um, you know, that your dad connected you to his friend to um, kind of rising the ranks as a chef? Yeah, so I worked in many restaurants. I've, I've cooked um, 13 years now in New York City. Um, and I think I worked at maybe like 10 restaurants, or maybe nine. Um, so I went from uh, Ramen Setagaya, which was the first uh, ramen shop uh, job that I had, to a, to a restaurant called Michael's, which was more of a new American Californian uh California-driven restaurant in Midtown, New York City. Mm -hmm. And I got that job through um, one of the servers at Ramen Setagaya. Her her fiancé was the chef de cuisine. So he got me a job. So it, it's through that introduction that I actually entered. Um, I got in. Because working at a ramen shop, you don't really learn the French techniques or American cooking techniques. You kind of just learn the ramen techniques only. Right. Um, so your, your skill set is very limited. Um, so for example, if someone was like, Hey, can you brunoise some shallots for me? I need one pint. You, you, if as a ramen cook, you wouldn't know what that really meant then. Um, so, and through Michael's, um, I worked there for close to two years and then I, um, decided it was time for me to leave and learn something else. Um, I went to Tabla as a, as a line cook and okay. that was, uh, chef Lloyd Cardoza's, uh, restaurant, uh, under Union Square Hospitality Group, um, you know, Chef Floyd just passed away too. Yeah, uh, from so COVID. Um, yeah. yeah, but he was an amazing mentor. Um, he was such a great teacher, and he his personality, like his philosophy of cooking, also how to lead a kitchen. I think I've learned a lot, a lot from him. And from there, I went to, um, I went. Uh, from there, I, I guess I, uh, after Tabla closed, I worked a few months at a restaurant called Oceana, which was a seafood-based restaurant. Um, and their and their executive chef, Ben Pollinger, was worked under Chef Floyd Cardoza as well. So that's how I got connected in there. And um, through introductions, I was able to get into Morimoto's uh, Tribeca Canvas, uh, which is closed now um, as a sous chef. And then Morimoto called me back to be the executive chef at Momosan Ramen. Yeah. That's um, a great story and kind of shows, you know, um, you know, obviously you put in a lot of time and hard work and energy and effort and made some nice connections and, and learned along the way. So, um, you know, here we are and it's, you know, put yourself in, I guess, when did you decide 2018, 2019, that you were going to open a restaurant? Was it your experience at him, the Korean pop-up that kind of gave you, um, you know, the idea to op go out and open up your own restaurant? Where, where did the yeah. idea for no one come from? Oh my God. That idea just, it, honestly, it happened so fast. When I was doing the pop-up, the only reason why I started doing the pop-up was because um, I quit my job as I was an executive chef for a hotel overseeing three food and beverage operations. And I was 29 years old and I'm turning 30 and I'm like, wait, hold on a second. Like, should I just quit and just try something on my own? Because if I fail now as a 30 year old kid, I can still bounce back. You know, I don't have kids or a wife that depend on me. I, I can I can mess up now and. And turn, turn this around. So I had enough courage to just quit and do pop-ups. Uh, my girlfriend, Rebecca, was supportive of that, too. Because, you know, I was making six figures. I had, you know, benefits, dental, medical, you know, benefits working for the hotel. Right. But now I'm going to lose all that and just have inconsistent, you know, income and lose all my benefits. Like vacation, paid vacation days just don't exist anymore. <laughs> yeah. So... Yeah, so, so I quit and I started doing this pop-up and I agreed to the six-month uh, short-term pop-up at this bar that just that, that was going to open up in East Village on 12th Street called Black Emperor. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm like, you know what, Let, let's just do it six months. At least there's something consistent. 
you know, I had to, you know, the deal was I have to pay X amount in rent. I have to pay uh, per 25% of their utility as well because I'm a shared um, like tenant in their space. And I keep all the food revenue. So it's like my food food vendor within a bar because they didn't want to deal with, you know, chefs or food costs and food. And, you know, the, the bar owner was just wanted to just handle the, the beverage side of things. Um, and then I was I was losing so much money. Like the first two months, I remember like, my rent was over $3,000 to use that tiny kitchen. Um, and I think I must have sold like three burgers a night, like on average. Oh. So I was losing thousands of dollars. It was to the point where I had to sell my Panerai watch just to have some, a few grand as like a cushion to help me maybe get through another month, you know? Wow. Um, and, but I was very determined and diligent. I didn't want to give up. You know, I'm very stubborn in that way. I think it's my Korean DNA in me <laughs> um, that I just reached out to a whole bunch of influencers and YouTube, like food, uh, you know, food content creators for YouTube yeah. and just comped a lot of a lot of food. And then one day um, Gothamist picked up on it and they their, uh, their food critic, food writer, Scott Lynch, came in three random times that I didn't know about and uh, wrote an amazing food review of of my food. And uh, it, that was it. I went from selling like three to ten burgers a night to selling over a hundred wow. overnight. So, yeah, that was a turning point. And, and, and I kept – and every month was felt good, felt good. And then – and this, uh, this guy uh, – a real estate agent just came in and just had had the food too and just introduced himself to me and said hey listen i'm a real estate agent in this neighborhood i'm gonna find you your restaurant and i didn't think anything of it but a few months later he calls me and he's like hey listen this just came on my lap fell on my lap you have to come right now because someone's gonna snatch this deal and that's how i found this location no one that's amazing um, and so, you know, obviously you, you opened in 2019 and, you know, here we are nearing the end of 2020. How has it been? I mean, I, I, it's during the pandemic and, um, pivoting to outdoor dining and, you know, how, how's it going for you in this crazy time? Um, in this crazy times it's going, it's, uh, definitely very very hard yeah very hard because because we have to constantly pivot our business strategies to to survive yeah you know when i first opened it was challenging because i didn't have my beer and wine license then so in new york city to get your beer and wine license and in certain community boards are very very it's very hard there's a long wait um, there's too many liquor licenses out in the in the community board. They're reluctant on giving full liquor licenses. Um, so, so I waited seven months to get my beer and wine license. Ugh. So when I when I opened, all I sold was food. Yeah. So people that wanted a beer to drink while they're eating some chicken wings and a burger, they couldn't do that. So you know their experience was not exactly, you know, at the best. Um, so and we're missing that portion of revenue for the for the restaurant. So I I was operating at a negative from the moment I opened, um, and then COVID hit, and and then we closed for a month during COVID. And I decided to reopen because I didn't want to rely just on the government to like bail me out. I'm like, you know what? I have to be proactive. And if I can find opportunities to just be of help in the community, that's enough reason for me to just go out there and just work. So I got an Airbnb right by the restaurant, and I just worked here with my cousin, like um, serving. I think we served over th five thousand meals for like uh, like like uh, you know Asian senior citizens that don't have access to like food during this time. Yeah, like in nursing homes, um, you know, for hospital workers, uh, you know, FDNY things like that and um when we were allowed to have outdoor dining that's when things started to look better like i was able to hire back a few more people and now we're we're doing indoor dining as well as outdoor dining 
And now our next big challenge is going to be the cold, the, the winter. Yeah. So, um, so it's it's not easy. We have to constantly just pivot and just constantly figure out ways to how to make it work because no one's going to figure this out for you. you yeah. Know? Well, good for you for putting in the, the effort and also giving back to the community. Um, I'm going to jump over to um, Yanni, but I wanted to you know, come back to you in a little bit to talk a little bit about the type of food that you serve at No One. Um, but Yanni, let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, taking over the family business. And, you know, that was in 2012 that you and your husband took it over. Um, what kind of changes did you make? Um, you, I guess, rebranded it as the Albright and, um, did the menu change at all? Did the design, did the philosophy of the restaurant? Um, tell us a little bit about, um, about that process. Sure. Um, so when we took over initially, it was um, really a part-time job because at that point I was still wrapping things up with my 17-year um, career in fashion and my husband was still working as a CFO for a streetwear brand called The Hundreds. And so we were really moonlighting and uh, it was my mom who was at the time almost 70 years old and my father had passed away and she was really just begging us to take over the restaurant and I really fought it tooth and nail. I didn't want to be in the restaurant business and she, you know my my husband had a talk with me and he said, you know, you're really being a spoiled brat because this is about your father's legacy. This is about our hometown and you know I, I really think that we need to do this. And he had brought in Michael Voltaggio uh, at the time to kind of just help us with ideas on, on what we could do, because this was a, you know, 40 year old mom and pop style restaurant. I think I don't even know that we took credit cards at the time. It was like, it was, you know, there was, there was, there was no expo line. There was no system. It was literally my mom making, you know, there was melantang on the menu, which is like a, a spicy Korean seafood soup. And then there was fish and chips. It was just random and, but it worked, it worked for them. So it really needed to make it our own, but to also preserve the legacy, it needed a complete overhaul from the menu uh, down to the design. And it was Michael who actually really kind of not talked us into it, but he he shared a perspective that really got me excited about doing the restaurant. Um, he's from Maryland. And he looked around and he said, I would do this place myself. This place is amazing. And I, I kind of looked at him like, really? Why? There's like neon beer signs. Like it's just, it was so old. And he said, because I'm from Maryland and this is, this could be something really great. And it was after that meeting that I actually got really excited about it. And um, we pared down the menu, which is never easy because there were tons of people who had been customers for 40 years that were not happy about the fact that the Korean melon was not on there. But uh, we, we, we had to pay homage to my mom's soup and we definitely made a fusion version. Um, so we pared down the menu. We did a slight remodel, so it was definitely more of a modern crab shack. My husband's a surfer, so you definitely get the feeling of, you know, after you surf, you can walk in and grab a lobster roll. Super casual, but uh, at the same time, there's areas and vignettes that are still uh, my father and my mother's my father's spirit for sure there with a sign that he made that says SMPR Seafood. And then we renamed it the Albright because the Albright is a nautical term for two knots or two cords being joined together. So that was our way of renaming the restaurant, but still, you know, honoring a legacy and a legacy business. And so it really did become something new, but um, by maintaining the character and the lineage of where it came from. I love that. Um, so, you know, how has it been? Um, you know, obviously you had 
you know, eight years before COVID. Since COVID, have you also, I'm assuming, needed to pivot? And, um, you know, are, are people coming back? Are you back open for um, outdoor dining? How, how has the business changed? And do you have any, um, you know, plans for what you're doing next? Yeah, so the first few months, of course, like every other restaurant, were really painful for us. And we also decided that rather than just being closed, we had to do something. Um, and so we set up a grocery store for our staff because at one point we had uh, over 100 employees. Mm-hmm. And so we did every Friday set up a grocery store so people could at least have the basic necessities, um, you know, proteins and vegetables, diapers and that sort of thing. So that kept us busy the first few months. We weren't open for business, um, but we were also providing, you know, lunch boxes for first responders if needed. And so that was fantastic. And then we were able to open up and still are for um, outdoor dining. And because we are at the beach and the weather has permitted us to, um, the business is slowly coming back. But um, we still have you know, yet to see whether indoor dining has come back. And um, we still haven't been able to bring back 100% of our staff. So it's no. been challenging. I'm, yeah. I'm not going to lie. It's been really, really challenging. Yeah. Um, I would imagine that a lot of the um, patrons are also tourists who are staying in Santa Monica and spending time at the beach and on the pier. So um, it definitely feels like, you know, obviously tourism is not back to what it was before. Um, yeah, that must No, be hard. it's not. But you know, what's great has been that because the pier has been such a tourist destination, we never really developed um, a local business. And so it's actually been an incredible opportunity to really, um, you know, get to know the people of our community in that way, where, um, because we never really had a to-go business. So now really opening up our business through Postmates and a lot of the delivery services, it's something very new for us. And, um, and there's a lot more people in our neighborhood who are taking day trips and coming down to the pier rather than, you know, avoiding it like the plague, like they did before, because it was, it's such a highly, you know, traffic neighborhood of tourists, but there's been a lot more, um, I would say neighborhood folks coming down and enjoying, um, you know, the pier, which has been really nice. Yeah. I've noticed that too, even along the beach, I feel like it's a lot more, Um, you know, people that live in Los Angeles and local people walking from Santa Monica that, you know, obviously did go to the beach, but probably not as often as they are now. Um, The beaches seem to be kind of filled with local families. Um, We're just going to take one quick break and hear from our sponsor. This episode is presented by Total Food Service. Total Food Service delivers the restaurant and food service industry's most comprehensive package of news and information. From day one of the COVID-19 crisis to today, the focus of Total Food Service has been to listen to the needs of their restaurant and food service readers. They were stunned by the endless stream of heartwarming stories. Restaurants everywhere were stepping up to feed hospitality workers and first responders while nimbly converting to takeout and delivery options. Total food service coverage has now moved to the planning forward stage. Offered in print and digitally at totalfood.com, you'll receive the latest on the new normal. Need answers and solutions? Find them at totalfood.com. Okay, so Jay, um, let's talk about the inspiration behind the menu at your restaurant. Talk to us about some of the favorite dishes that um, you've created and also what um, your patrons love to eat and come back for time and again. Yeah, so so first, no one is the name of my hometown, um, where I was born and where, I'm, where my family's from in Seoul, South Korea. It's the northeastern region of Seoul, kind of like how East Village is the East 
region of, of New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, also, the word no one is a, is a palindrome. So it's, it's spelled forward and backwards the same. And I thought that was really cool. So we made the type, the logo with three tigers kind of facing each other over a bottle of soju. Um, so no one is my my first restaurant, and I wanted this to be like uh, a repre- to represent my Korean American upbringing as an immigrant, um, because I didn't want to do a, a full on traditional restaurant because I don't think that's exactly who I am as a person. Um, I always kind of broke the rules and bent the rules when I could, so I wanted to showcase that through food um so no one we serve korean inspired but new york driven uh, food and drinks um our top sellers are things like our dry aged steak burger and we and the korean touch on that is we make our own kimchi mayo that we have add to it Mm. um another dish is our chopped cheese rice cakes so we don't cook tteokbokki like your traditional sweet gochujang flavored tteokbokki um, ours tastes like a chopped cheese sandwich that you find in Harlem. Um, our chicken wings are another top seller. Um, we serve two different kinds now, um, but the original one is we use all components of shin ramyun uh, into the dish, into the wings itself. So the wings are br- uh, buttermilk brined overnight. So that's the American touch. Uh, we add our ramen soup into the glaze. The noodles get pulverized and added in as an ingredient into the dredge. And the dried vegetable packet gets spice ground and added to our blue cheese buttermilk sauce. Oh, yeah. That sounds delicious. So Sounds amazing. Yeah, so it's very nostalgic. <laughs> I wanted to... I didn't um, want to just awesome. do, like, regular so, wings. Yeah. Yanni, um, you know, you then went on... Sorry, you know, that? you still have your restaurant. You're still running that with your husband. You've also launched a restaurant group, um, but you also have kimchi avocado and you make these amazing boards. So boards for celebrations, um, you know, cheese boards. And I saw you recently posted a Halloween board um, and you're actually putting out a lot of great content on your website and on social media. Tell us a little bit about that. It sounds like that was the place for you to kind of go back to your Korean roots and and bring in some Korean flavors um, into the recipes and um, the dishes that you make on on the web um, and the recipes, but also through your board business. So tell us a little bit about kimchi avocado. Sure. Well, thank you so much. I'm having a lot of fun doing it. I feel like it's saving me right now because it's my main creative outlet. But um, kimchi avocado was really, I, I owe it to my friend and mentor, Yutsai, who is an amazing uh, photographer and recipe developer. And it was really him pushing me to uh, share on a larger platform than just my personal Instagram that was private. Uh, the recipes that not only I grew up on, but the way that I cook for my family, which is, you know, merging my California roots and, you know, the the Korean food that I grew up on. And so I started last year really writing recipes, which if you've ever tried to get a recipe from a Korean woman of my mother's generation, it just doesn't (laughs) exist. And so it started with me videotaping her, making her kimchi and uh, writing down all of the recipes and asking her to make things that were some of my favorite dishes and really learning how to write recipes because it's a completely different skill set than especially Korean recipes. So... um, It started really, you know, with spending that time with my mom, which I think has probably been the biggest gift of creating kimchi avocado. Mm -hmm. And so I started with that and that, you know, gave us a lot of content to work with. And then it really became, you know, like a love letter to my mom and my grandma who 
taught me everything I know um, about being in the kitchen and Korean food. And probably also to my younger self who really didn't appreciate Korean food or have um, as much pride as I do about it now because all I ever wanted was to trade my friend for their bologna sandwich on white <laughs> bread for lunch. Um, the kimbap that my mom packed me for lunch and I swear I would just beg her to you know, pack me these really disgusting processed food lunches that I'm so thankful for now. But um, it really is my my outlet and my way of celebrating something that I, I really just kind of discovered how much I love in the last couple of years raising my own family and um, and referring back to these beautiful traditions and techniques that really are incredible. I mean, they, uh, they are, they're these, you know, fermenting kimchi and my mom makes her own tenjang, which is fermenting miso. I mean, these are really incredible techniques that I just want to remember and I want to carry on. So kimchi avocado has just been my little hub to, you know, uh, preserve those recipes that my mom has taught me and then really add in my own touch because I am a California girl and I did grow up eating tacos all across Los Angeles. And, you know, there definitely is a nacho recipe with kimchi on there because that is to me Los Angeles and that is the city that raised me and had such a colossal effect on you know, the food I like to eat and um, share with my friends. So, um, and then the boards just really was because I needed to make money. <laughs> and my husband was, you know, he's, he's the, he's the finance. And he said, you know, you can close doors on catering because I was running catering for all of the restaurants. And he said, but we need to generate some sort of income. You know, the grazing tables that you do within catering are really successful. I'd hate for you to lose that part of the catering business. So uh, if that's something that fits into the brand of Kimchi Avocado, you can that can live on your site. And it's actually been really organic, and it has because the the content of, you know, building the boards has, you know, really seamlessly kind of integrated into the whole kimchi avocado world. And uh, it's also been something that I've been able to pivot um, during during, you know, COVID because I'm able to deliver individual size boxes. So in a way, it's really been um, a lifesaver that I decided to uh, keep growing the boards business, even though I closed doors on catering last year. Yeah, that's great. Um, and the boards are, you know, they're so fun. They're so beautiful. They're so creative. Um, you know, I've, gotten the chance to experience them <laughs> and you have you know you do such a great job um and i think in this time too you know people are looking to mix things up however they can um you know they're they're they they're wanting to get back out and go out to restaurants and you know see friends and family in a safe way and i think just you know instead of making dinner ordering one of your boards and experiencing that um, you know, is, is such a treat for anyone um, who lives in Los Angeles and um, has the ability to, to order one of your boards. So I definitely recommend anyone listening here, um, check out Kimchi Avocado. Oh, and, thank you. Yeah, these beautiful boards. Um, I, I wanted to ask Jay, so did I see that you recently launched a chili oil that you sell as well? And do you sell that out of the restaurant? Yeah, so chili oil is something that we use on our dishes I, we always did since day one and um i just wanted people kept asking for sides of it and if they could just buy like a pint to take home and i did it for certain like vip guests that we uh you know customers that we had in the beginning and i'm like wait what let's just start selling this like and just jar it up you know um it's something that we make a big batch of um every two weeks and that that's how it happened um I love that. And can people buy it on the web or do they have to be in New York City? You can buy it on the web, um, on our website, www.no1nyc.com. And we can ship it to you uh, domestically. Also, uh, you can buy it at the shop if you're here. Um, it's $10 per jar. Awesome. 
Um, okay, so our last um, question is actually more of a game. It's the game F. Mary Kill. So I'm going to give three Korean ingredients or dishes, and I want each of you to tell me, and Jay, we'll start with you, which one you want to fuck, which one you want to marry, and which one you want to kill. So we have kimchi, bulgogi, and chili oil. Chili oil. Okay, fuck, marry, kill. I'll fuck the chili oil. I'll marry the kimchi and I'll kill the bulgogi. Okay, great. Um, how about you, Yanni? I mean, I don't want to sound boring, but I definitely need to marry the kimchi because I can't live a day without the kimchi. Um, I'm going to say... Yeah, okay. So I'm going to say fuck the chili oil and I'm going to say kill yes. the bulgogi. Yes. <laughs> oh, that was fun. Um, well, I really loved having both of you and hearing your personal stories about your families and your journeys to the U.S., whether it was you personally, Jay, or your family, Yanni, um, where you came from, the foods that, that has always been on your tables. And thanks, everyone, for listening. To learn more about the food and drink discovery platform that is the Feed Feed, head to thefeedfeed.com. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, at the Feed Feed, and follow today's guests as well. If you have a food story to tell or you want us to interview a blogger, cookbook author, chef, or restaurateur about a specific country or region and its cuisine, we'd love to hear your suggestions. Just send us a DM on Instagram. See you next time. The Feed Feed is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.